All right, so let's remember where we are in the book of Nehemiah. We've been walking through this as a church, just looking at what we can learn from the story of Nehemiah as they're rebuilding the walls and as they're rebuilding the the city of Jerusalem with expectation that God is going to renew his people. And so last week we looked at chapter 8, and I kind of left you with the challenge to go and throw more parties. Remember that? By the way, I'm just curious, was anyone like, I'm going to throw a party last week? You did it? Yesterday, woohoo! Yeah, I like it. Good. Uh, so Wednesday is you, you're having one Wednesday. I like it. Yes. This should be the one thing everyone's like. I will obey the word. I will. I will throw a party. This is like this is like a super easy one. So I would encourage you to go back if you missed that message. Go back and listen to it. Uh, but essentially, what happened in, in, in chapter eight of Nehemiah is the people hear the word of God again for the first time, and they're inspired. Uh, uh, at first, they begin to worship and, and do the default thing where they're kind of repentant, and that's where we're going to go today. But, but Nehemiah and the priests and everyone begins to correct them and say, no, we're not going to do that now. Instead, you're going to go and throw feasts. So get out your choicest food, your best wine, go and throw parties and find people who don't have anything and actually invite them to the party. And so go out and throw these great parties and these feasts. And so... Uh, so I left you with the challenge of going to do that, not just for the sake of just having a good time, but for remembering the goodness of God, for remembering God's faithfulness, for recalling the ways that God has worked in our lives and the way he's been faithful to us. And, and, and this actually, I think, is very appealing. One of the best witnesses we have to the world is how to have a really good time in a godly way. I, I, I want to say that again. I think one of the best witnesses we have to the world is to show people how to have a good time in a godly way. I don't know if you've ever been to like uh, the juxtaposition between a party where everyone is just like doing all the things that we're not supposed to do, right? Uh, you've been around that. I'm sure at some point in time, you've probably been exposed to that. And then somehow you pluck a person out of that environment into an environment where there's a lot of godly people having a really good time. And have you ever seen the look of surprise on their face that no one's just doing absolute stupidity? And it, it is intriguing. Like, how do you have fun? Like, and you guys are genuinely having a good time, and I, I think there's something really genuinely appealing about that. Now, this week is going to feel like the exact opposite of that, because now we're going to jump into chapter 9, and in chapter 9, instead of throwing a party, we're now stepping into repentance. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read a few verses here, um, not the whole chapter. We're going to look at chapter 9 and chapter 10. Uh, but we're not going to go through all of it. I'm just going to highlight a couple things that are representative of these chapters. So starting in chapter 9, verse 1, here's what it says. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites, so remember that, the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and they confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. So both their personal sins and the corporate sins of the past. It's very biblical to confess sins of our own as well as the sins of our ancestors. They stood where they were and they read from the book of the law of the Lord for their God for a quarter of the day. And spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord. So basically they're splitting up the day between reading from the law, worship, and confession. It's like almost like a 24-hour thing that, that, that they're, they're doing here. And, they, and, they, and standing, on the stairs, the Levi, standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, and there's a bunch of other names listed. And they cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God. 
And the Levites, and again, these names said, stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. And so what we have here is like almost like a call and response kind of thing. There are people standing on the stairs and they're singing and they're, they're calling forth confession and the people are responding and there's this kind of this giant corporate confession and worship that's happening. Then it says this, blessed be your glorious name and may be it exalted, um, ex- exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts. The earth and all that's in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heavens worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made covenant with him to give him the descendants, the land of the Canaanites, Amorites, and all the ites. You kept your promises because you are righteous. I'm going to pause right here because the rest of the chapter is basically this and just repetition. God, you did this, you did this, you did this, and it was awesome. You were faithful, but God, we were unfaithful. And they're going to keep recognizing how God was faithful and how they were unfaithful. And they're going to confess those sins. And this is going to be a a moment of repentance. So they're putting on sackcloth, which is like a coarse material. It's hard. It's like something that you basically, I mean, there's no other reason to wear it other than to make you feel bad. Like, I mean, there isn't, and it's a reminder, they would do this as a reminder, as a symbol of like the need to, 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 to be cleansed. Uh, as a reminder that there was something wrong and it needed to be made right. And, like, and so they would do, some, do this, wear this physical sackcloth and they would do, have ashes that they would put on or here they're tossing dirt on their head, which is a symbol of kind of like from, from the dirt you came and from the dirt you'll go back, right? That's why we have that, like sometimes at funerals people will say that, right? These are all symbols reminding us of our mortality and our, and our, and our death. And so this is like all of a sudden we shift gears from this great celebration in, verse, in, in chapter 8, and to this time of confession and repentance in chapter 9 and verse 10. And this corporate, uh, this corporate kind of confession starts to happen. And they're, what they're doing here in this chapter is they're acknowledging God's faithfulness, but they're also acknowledging their own unfaithfulness. Uh, so the question for me is, this is odd, because it seems like we have two different responses. So which one is right? Like, which, like, are we supposed to celebrate? I made a big deal out of that last week, that when we have a revelation of God, it should lead to celebration. Or are we supposed to be repentant? The answer is yes. We're supposed to be both at the end of the day. It's not either or, it's both and. As a matter of fact, Paul picks up on this, on this theme and actually reveals how God's kindness and reflecting on God's, God's kindness leads us to repentance. Romans chapter, four, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his, his forbearance or his patience, uh, and, not, and not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So basically, here's the idea. Like, if you realize how good and loving and kind God is, it should lead you to a place of going, I don't deserve this. Like, I'm not holy. He's really good and I'm not. He's really faithful and I'm not. You see, like, when you see how much God has provided for you and how amazing he is, it should lead to a place of repentance. Like, when you, when you see how God has formed you and how undeserving you are of all of that, it actually can produce a change in your heart. And so what they're doing in chapter 8 is elevating the goodness of God so much that in chapter 9 it produces this response. 
They've been focusing in on the kindness of God through celebration, sharing these stories of God's faithfulness and God, look at all you've done. And now we're here in this place of promise. And the most natural response after reflecting on that would be go, oh my God, we don't deserve this. Not in a groveling kind of way, not in a self-hatred kind of way, but a genuine humility. Like, God, we just don't deserve this. Have you ever been in that position where someone's given you a, like a gift that's above and beyond what you know that you deserve? It's a little uncomfortable. Like, like you know what I'm saying? Like, it, 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 it's, it's, it's humbling. It, it makes you uncomfortable. It, it, and, and I don't know about you, but in those moments, you're like, chill, you cry all the time, but, but it can really make you emotional. Like, you know, it can really move you. And I think that's kind of what's happening here, that when we reflect on God's faithfulness and our unfaithfulness and that what they're doing in this passage, it can lead to sorrow. And so the Apostle Paul, like he said in Romans, kindness leads to repentance. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Well, that's interesting. Like, it almost feels like those statements don't belong together. God's kindness leads to repentance, and God's sorrow leads to repentance. So which is it? Yes, it's both. Actually, the kindness, the overwhelming kindness and grace of God should move our hearts so much that we go, we do not deserve this, Lord. And that that should produce a sense of sorrow that we've been living less than what God has designed us to, to live. God, I haven't, been, I haven't been living into all that you have for me. It's, it's revealed in God's kindness, and it's, it's kind of a confusing thing. But actually, sorrow is an appropriate response that should lead to repentance. Let me just clarify. Sorrow and repentance are not the same thing. Being sorry is not the same as repenting. Sorry is, I'm a, I'm like, I feel bad that something happened. Repentance is, I will do something different than what I've done before. So sorrow sometimes comes before repentance. I recognize like I've, I've wronged God. I've done something I shouldn't have done. And so, so now my heart is moved to do something different. Or sometimes repentance happens like you realize like the, I've, I've responded to the call to follow Jesus, for example. And in doing so, you didn't know at first how bad of a sinner you were. <laughs> like, I don't know, has this happened to anyone else? Like, I didn't realize how much I needed God's grace until I experienced God's grace. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I, I, had my, I had my waywardness as a time, but like, I've known God my whole life. There have been times where I've ran from God, but I've known God my whole life. I don't ever remember a time in my life where I didn't know God in some way. And so I don't have this like story of like, I didn't know God and I was running from him. And then, and then one day I did. My story is like, God has always been gracious in my life. Like, and, 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 and so there, like, but there were times in my life where I recognized, man, I need his grace even more than I thought. Right. And so these chapters here might feel at odds with one another, but, what, but what's happening is the people have been reveling in God's goodness so much that now they're being reminded that he is that good and they are not, that he is really faithful and they are not. And so what happens here in this passage is exactly what you would expect to happen. There's a sorrow, there's a repentance that follows this. And by the way, uh, I think it's important just to go back to that statement of, of Paul it's godly sorrow that leads to repentance, not worldly sorrow. You can be sorrow, be sorry, and not be godly sorrow. You can be sorry and, and, and just feel bad, 
But that, the world is full of people who feel bad about lots of things but don't do anything different. That doesn't lead us to salvation. It's godly sorrow that leads us to salvation. It's sorrow that turns our attention and affection back to God. Does that make sense? Not just sorrow that turns my attention and my affection here. Have you ever been, like, like um, listen to a sad song? Like, this happened a lot for me. Like, when I was, like, a teenager, I was, like, super into emo, you know? And, like, you just, like, this is so sad. And I just love being, te- I don't know, teenagers love, just certain teenagers love being sad. Anyone, like, you know, like, yeah, just, like, I just identify with that sadness. Like, now I look at, listen back to, like, these love songs, like, that I liked when I was, like, 13 about this girl, like, you know, whatever. And I'm like, dude, what were you doing? Like, you didn't know what love was. Like, why are you feeling so sad? But, like, we do this to ourselves where we make ourselves sad. Like, that's not this. Like, this is, like, no, my heart is grieved because I know I've grieved the heart of God. So what happens here, now I'm going to give you my punchline right now, is they step into this place of repentance. And what you would expect at the end of this is that there would be a revival. There would be a renewal that will happen with God's people, but it doesn't happen. There's almost a revival. And if I had a sermon title tonight, it would be called Almost Revival. Because they do all the right things from this point forward, except for they miss one step at the very end, and that step is everything. And I'm going to tell you right now, for the next few minutes, I am going to go after hard the religious spirit and religion. I'm going to tell you right now. That's where they go with this, okay? I'll explain what I mean in a minute, by, in a second. So first, the, right, the first thing they do is really good. They read God's word. So they spend a quarter of the day. They get out the scripture and they read God's word and they proclaim God's word over the people. And that is absolutely the right place to start in repentance. It's about what is true. What is God's view of reality? What does God say? Not what do I feel, not what do I think, but what does God say? What is God's heart? How does he feel? Those are the priorities. And so they reset themselves around these priorities. They reorient themselves around God's truth found in his word. And, and not just the, the, what I think about God's word and not just their feelings their, uh, or, or their opinions and, um, and they're, they're anchoring themselves here in God's word. I would just say for us, if we want to experience any kind of renewal or refreshing as a church or for you as an individual, the starting place is to anchor yourself in God's word. Know what he said. Know what he said for yourself. Not just what your favorite author has said about who God is and what the word says. Not just your favorite podcast that you listen to or your favorite preacher. I know you guys listen to me on repeat every, every week. Yeah, I'm uh, just kidding. Um, but, but it's not about what people's opinions are of the word. It's about what, what is in this book. What does God have to say to you? What is God speaking to your heart and allowing this to shape and mold my life rather than me tell it what it should say? The, what, the, what the people of God in this moment are doing is saying, we need to be reminded of who we are. These are not just, by, by the way, they're not just learning facts. They're not just learning propositional truths about things we should believe. They're, they're being reminded of who the God of heaven is. And they're being reminded of who they're called to be and how God has asked them to walk in relationship with him. And so, like, I just, I I can tell you, if we don't have that foundation, we're going to be goofy right off from the beginning. And so they start off really well as they they turn to God's word and read God's word and and they dig in. 
Uh, by the way, just simple, simple thing, if like, you're like, I don't know where to start, like, I don't know where to start reading scripture. Uh, one, I, I, we're a small enough church, would you just come and talk to me? I'll help you, I promise I will. I'll find a way to help you learn how to read the word. But if you're afraid to do that or you don't want to do that, we do have a great resource in Right Now Media. It's a free resource on our website. You go right to there, and there are all kinds of Bible studies and devotionals. And there are even things on there that will help you learn how to study the Bible and read the Bible for yourself. Like, so there's just no reason for not doing that. Like, I was talking with our girls today. Uh, Charlie, my, my daughter, was drawing the, the Jesus fish. You know what I'm talking about, the Jesus fish? And we're talking about how the, the legend of early Christians, how they used to, maybe you've not heard this before, but the, what would happen is when the Christians were being persecuted in the first hundred years or so of Christianity, uh, the, the rumor goes that one Christian would come and make one half of the fish, and another Christian would come along and make the other half of the fish. And that they knew that that was a place where they could meet with other believers, and they could worship, and they could somehow rally and pray for one another. And so we talked about how that is still an issue today where there's persecution all over the world where Christians are not able to worship. Like, they're not able to read God's word. And so we talked just briefly about how even today in certain parts of the world, they don't have access to a Bible. It's illegal to have one. And so you know what they do is they'll find someone who has a page, a page, one page of this whole book, and they will guard this with their very lives. They'll fold it up and keep it, and, they'll, and then they'll copy it down, and they've got one page of the Bible, and their worship meetings aren't one person up here talking for a half hour. It's just one person reading that one page of the Bible as though it's very life, guys. We just, I, I'm going to push a little bit. We just have no excuse. I, can, I have seven devices around me right now I can look up the Word of God, right? And, and even if all you do is get the, the, the scripture of the day, from the Bible app, and read that one scripture. Good. That's fine. Like, I'm not saying you've got to spend hours and hours. Just, just, just one, one scripture meditated on all day. Some of the best heroes in all of, all of, Christendom, all of Christianity had one phrase from one scripture. Augustine, John Wesley, one phrase from one scripture radically changed their life. Soapbox off. So first they read. Second, they reflect and remember. All throughout this passage, they begin to, re they begin to remind themselves of what God has done, and they, re they recount, God, you did this for Abraham, and then you did this for Mo Moses, and then you did this for him, and then you did this for them. They begin to recount God's faithfulness and their unfaithfulness all throughout chapter 9. And they remember not only that God was faithful, but they remembered their unfaithfulness. But God, we did wickedness in your eyes. We didn't do what you were called us to do, what you called us to do. Here's a couple examples. Verse 16. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember. I want you to underline that in your Bibles. They failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. I'm telling you, there is a link between forgetfulness and hard-heartedness. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed leaders in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them 
even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God. And it's like this over and over again throughout this passage. God, we did this, but you were still faithful. We did this, but you were still good. It's important to reflect and remember as a process of repentance. And actually, um, uh, throughout this passage, they're remembering, it's just important, I think, for Father's Day, that God led them like a father. He led them like a father. He forms them. They don't have any existence unless he chooses to bring them forward. He, bring, he gives them life. He leads them like a father would lead his children. He provides for them like a father provides for his children. And then he corrects and rebukes them as a good father should all along the way. But they were like rebellious children. Here, just another sample, verse 28, just in case you need another and if you weren't convinced. But as soon as they were at rest, this is talking about once they come into the land, they again did what was evil in your, in your sight. And then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you dis- delivered them time after time. You ever feel like when you're watching, you're watch- like reading the Bible, you're watching like the same story play out over and over again? Does your life ever feel like this? Like, just because nothing is new under the sun, guys. The same thing that happened with God's people in the Old Testament is the same stuff that happens in our lives. We forget. We forget who God is. We forget what he's done. We, in our forgetfulness, we forget, God, you are the God who is amazing, who is provide and can provide anything I need at any possible time. And when we forget that, and we forget those kinds of things, we take matters into our own hands. We cut corners I'm telling you, like, this is like to like little tiny baby sins to like big, to big, to big ones. It's the person who doesn't believe that God can restore their relationship with their spouse that ends up in an affair because they don't believe that God can restore this relationship. Do you see what I mean? Like forgetfulness is a really big deal. It's the person who doesn't believe that God can provide what they need financially, that will cut corners and find ways to get that illegally. It's the person who doesn't believe that God can minister to, to, the, to the deepest places of their hearts and their brokenness, that will find ways to use substances and other things to fit that need. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, it's the same thing, guys. It's just a different, different era. And so they reflect and they remember that God was faithful and they were not. Then the next thing that they do is they recognize their reality. Towards the end of chapter 9, they start to recognize that things, even though they're good, and even though God has been good, they're they're not what they should be. That God has been really faithful, completely and totally, but they're still dealing with the consequences of their unfaithfulness. And they need God to intervene. So in verse 32, here's what it says. Now, therefore, God, this is at the end of all of this remembering, the great God, the mighty and awesome who keeps the covenant of love. I love this, by the way. If you ever like, need to know how to pray, here's a good way to do it. Just read right here from this book. The great and awesome, mighty God who keeps his covenant of love. Do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come upon us on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all the people from all the days of the kings of Assyria until now. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. That is awesome. You have remained righteous. God, there is no accusation that we can lob against you. You have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. It is clear as plain day 
Our kings and our leaders and our priests and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or your statutes. You warned them. Even while they were in your kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But then here's the request. But see, we are slaves today. Slaves in the good land of our ancestors. So that they... that you gave our ancestors so they could eat of the fruit and other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. So here they are. They've moved back into their homeland and they've been given now some freedom, but it's nowhere near what it's meant to be. They're not eating the fruit of the land. They, they still are having to pay homage and tribute to the Assyrian king far away. I'm not the Assyrian king, but the Babylonian king far away. I guess, oh, it's the Persian king. Sorry, we're going to go through all the kings here. Uh, I'll get the right one in a minute. But they're, they're still paying tribute to foreign kings. They're still surrounded by enemies on all sides. It is not what God intended it to be yet. And so here they are enjoying the blessing, but they, they recognize the reality is still not what God intended it to be. They recognize, though, but it's their fault. Like, they're not blaming God. They're like, yeah, God, we recognize this is a problem, but we still need you to intervene. And like, and like they have appealed so many times before, they know God can do it. This is so important because it's not enough to simply acknowledge what's happened in the past. We have to be able to embrace our present reality in order for there to be change. We have to say, God, here's where we find ourselves. Here's where we are. We recognize that this is not your best for us, and we want your best. And so they recognize their current reality, and they could have stopped there, but they take one more step. They not only recognize their reality, they recognize that this is going to require a response from them, that there is a responsibility on their part to see something happen, to see a change happen. And so chapter 10 is all about them owning their responsibility. It jumps from them reminding themselves of what God has done and appealing and praying to God to them owning their responsibility. And so in chapter 10, they begin to confess their own roles and their own sins and not just remember the things of the past. And then the phrase that pops up a couple different times here in this chapter is that they assume responsibility. I love that. There's a phrase over and over again. We assume responsibility, God. We own it. This is us. It's on us, God. We, we can't blame anyone but ourselves. So they assume responsibility. And man, is that not something we need more of in our day today, right? Everyone's blaming everyone else all the time for everything, right? This is, again, not, nothing new. What did Adam and Eve do? When God approaches Adam and Eve, like, Adam's like, ah, uh, the woman, she gave me the fruit. I don't, it's the woman you gave me, like, you know, shifting blame, it's her fault. No, actually, it's your fault, Right? And we still do this. We're still blaming other people for our stuff. But here they're owning it. They're saying, no, we need, we, need to, we need to own this. We take responsibility. And then they make a renewed commitment. God, we're going to do it better. We're going to do it better. We'll follow your laws more faithfully. And so they make this kind of covenant renewal. So this is what would happen in the ancient world. There would be covenants that would happen between people or in some cases between gods and a, and a, and a person and they would be, need to be reminded of the covenant, the agreement that they made. Everything was, was run by covenants. Covenants are just agreements between two parties, usually between one who's a greater party and one who's a lesser party. 
So a king and his people. And they would be in agreement, and they basically, it would be like, this is how our relationship's going to work. Here's what I'm going to do for you, and here's what you're going to do for me, and here are the terms of the covenant, and we're going to commit to this thing. And so the, the people are saying, God, you have been faithful to your covenant. The problem's not with you. The problem's with us. And so, God, we're going to step up, and we're now going to be faithful to the covenant again. And we're going to recommit ourselves. So much so that they double down and they're like, God, if we don't do it, curse us. And they pray curses on themselves. That was a part of the law. Like, if you, if you go well, if you, uh, if you follow me and, you, and give your heart and you're devoted to me, then you will receive blessing. If you do not, there will be curses. And so they're like, okay, God, they're doubling down. They're like, yeah, okay, we're going to do better, God. So if, if we don't do our part, would you curse us? That's a dangerous prayer. This is a good start because grace is not opposed to us taking responsibility. God's grace and God's work in our life is not opposed to us taking some personal responsibility and saying, God, I'll, I'll do it. I, I, I'm going to do my part. What does Jesus tell the disciples? Take up your cross and follow me. What does he tell the disciples? Go and I will do this. There's a, there is a command, there is, and, and, and that God can't do for us, that we have to own. And it doesn't mean that God's grace is pressed aside, it's actually God's grace that he would allow us to respond to him. So grace, Dallas Willard used to say, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is not opposed to effort. Just effort can't save you. Only God can do that, Right? Walking with God and knowing God requires a response from us. It is a conscious choice. No one is going to accidentally love Jesus. Like, it's a choice that we make to respond to the God who loves us. That, that, is, the, that is a beautiful grace of God. That's so, so important. And actually, the, the, the heroes of the faith, the people that you revere, the people that you look up to in life, are all people who figured this out who said, you know what? I realize that if I want the most out of this relationship, I'm going to have to contribute my part to the relationship. So a few weeks ago, we had a guest speaker named Chad who talked about growing our spiritual capital, growing and knowing God. And he talked about things that we have to do that God can't do for us if we want to grow in our relationship with God. And all those spiritual heroes that you, that you can think of, the people's books who you read, the podcasts you listen to, they all have figured this out. And the reason why you look up to them and you listen to them is because you're going, they have something I want. And I'm going to tell you right now, they put in the work. Right now, there's a young man playing basketball and the other in the gym. He's here every Sunday night. He works his tail off in there to be the best basketball player he can be. And he's doing it when no one else is around, no one's watching him, he's not doing it for show. And he's getting better and better and better. Last week I pulled him aside, I said, hey, I just want you to know, there's a bunch of kids who are watching you in here. And they're seeing what it takes, like if you really want to be good at something, you got to put the work in. Again, grace is not opposed to effort. If you want to grow and flourish in your relationship with God, you will have to own responsibility for it. No one can set your alarm for you. I want God to wake me up in the middle of the night and give me dreams. That's not how he speaks to me. I'm fine, Lord, if you want to do that. 
right now, the way God speaks to me is set your alarm and get up early. Or stay up late and turn off the TV. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, that's the, you know, so it's like, I, I, like, it would just be easy. It would just be so easy if that's the way it worked. It just doesn't work that way. But here's the problem. This is where they also start to go wrong. I'm going to land this here in just a minute. So. <laughs> they start to go wrong here because it's a good impulse, but it's a bad execution. Because they start inviting curses back on themselves. God, we'll do better. We promise. God, if we don't, curse us. And so here's what you should be thinking as you're reading this. If you're reading, you've been tracking along with this story. You should be asking one big question. What will be different about this generation than every generation that's come before that has made the same kinds of vows and the same kind of promises but have ended up being unfaithful? What will be different? They've just recounted generation after generation who have said, God, we're sorry, and we will come back to you. We will turn to you. And now they're saying, but God, we will be different. We won't be like them. And if we're, if we're, not, like, if we're not like them, or if we are like them, then God curse us. And so they're saying, God, we're, we're different somehow. But what's different? Because nothing in this passage and anything in the book of Nehemiah is different than any other generation that's ever happened in the past. As a matter of fact, what they're doing, this, this, is, this is where I'm going to go after the religious spirit thing. They're putting all of the pressure on their performance, on their religious performance. They're putting all the pressure on their faithfulness rather than on God's faithfulness. So God, you'll love us and be good to us only if we get it right now. Only if we get it right. And if we don't get it right this time, curse us. And I'm telling you, that is absolutely infects our thinking and is a destroyer of people's souls. What would make them think that where every generation had come up short, that they will be more earnest? They will be more sincere. They will be more committed. But somehow they think that they will. Have you ever, I'm going to guess, every person in this room at some point in time has prayed a prayer like, God, I will never, ever do that again. If you, and then my guess is all of you have done it again. Right? Like, this is what we do all the time. We make these vows with God. God, I won't, I won't do that again. And that's what they're doing here. They're making a vow with God. And they're putting all of the pressure and the emphasis in the completely wrong place. It's based on their faithfulness and God odds, on, on God's faithfulness. They've done everything right up until this point, but then they fall short. As a matter of fact, I think that this is exactly what we do all the time. Right now should have been an opportunity for them to fall on their faces before and say, God, we will not get it right. We're going to screw up again. We, and, and the only thing that will change us is the spirit that you promised your people. So come now and let your presence fall like it did in the days of old. Come now, God, let your presence fall on us. Would you send your Messiah to save us? You promised that there would be a deliverer in the line of King David. Would you send that person right now because he is our only hope. We cannot get this right. They don't do that. It reveals where they think the change is going to happen. It's going to happen on their own. It's going to happen on their own ability to do the right things and to be perfect and to get it all right. And how many of you are tired of that kind of life? Of trying, of tired of trying to get it right all the time and be perfect and all those kinds of things. And Jesus has never asked you to be that. 
He is that for you. The, the Messiah is the fulfillment of everything where they have fallen short all along the way. What, this should be a glaring thing for us going, where is the presence of God here? God's presence hasn't come back to the temple. All the prophets promised that the presence of God would come back and then they would receive a new heart, that he would take away their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Guess what? They're making promises based off of hearts of stone. They need hearts of flesh. And so do we. See, only God is righteous. Only God is righteous. Old Testament says our righteousness is like filthy rags. It uses actually stronger words than that. It's not worth anything. It's not that God doesn't love you. It's just that there's no possible way you could ever be good enough. And guess what? That's okay with him. Because he looks at that and says, you know what? I know that and I still love you. As a matter of fact, I love you so much, I'm going to give my only son, I'm going to enter into your mess, and I'm going to let you take the absolute worst that the world can throw at me. I'm going to take it on my shoulders so I can wash you white as snow. And then I'm going to pour my spirit on you so that you will actually know me in different ways. Jeremiah says that the, the laws of the Lord won't be written on tablets of stone, but will be written on your heart. There's a different thing, guys, but we keep trying to go back to the Old Testament. We keep trying to go back to the old ways of doing it and say, God, I got this, okay? I'm going to try harder, do better. When I think what God is asking us is to yield daily to him. Yield every day. Holy Spirit, I don't got this. I don't have this. If, if you don't work in me, Lord, I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be bitter. If you don't work in me, I'm not going to be able to give forgiveness to that person I know I need to forgive. If you don't work in me, Lord, I know that I'm going to give in to temptation again. So, Lord, I'm, I'm just positioning my here. I'm yielding to you completely and totally for you to do whatever it is that you want to in my life today. That is the posture. It's leaning into his righteousness rather than our own. It's receiving the grace that's freely offered to you by coming to the throne of grace over and over again. The throne of grace doesn't come to you. You boldly go before the throne of grace and say, God, I need your mercy. I need your kindness. I need your love. Guys, that will spark a revival. That will spark a renewal in our hearts. That will spark change in your home. A hearts that are yielded to the Holy Spirit. Hearts that are completely and totally sold out to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he covers your sins completely and totally that you are in Christ, that you are as absolutely clean as Jesus. There is no difference. That everything that belongs to him belongs to you. That all the promises of God are yes and amen. This is true, guys. This is true. And maybe instead of doing sin management for the rest of our lives, we can get on with the business of like walking in the glory of God. Like, I, I just don't have any interest in doing dead religion right now. It's just, it's just, it's just not, interesting, not interesting to me anymore. The world doesn't need that. The world doesn't need better practices. Practices can help you. So all the things that they do up to this point were right. Read the word of God, turn and remember what God has done. Like all of these things are also important and those are things we should implement in our, our life daily. There are times for getting down on our knees and repenting before the Lord and saying, God, I am sorry. Those are all things that we should do. But they are empty if God doesn't show up in it. Every religion around the world has good practices that you can follow. Christians aren't the only ones who pray. Christians aren't the only ones who fast. Christians aren't the only ones who do meditation, who, who give alms to the poor. Like, 
you, I'm, just, I'm describing like five different religions right now. What's different about our faith is that the God of heaven lives inside of us and that he has rescued us and he is with us right now. That's different. That's different. And that is what the world needs. I love you guys. I'm, I'm, I'm not mad. I'm excited. I'm excited. Because here's what I know. I know that this will set our hearts ablaze. I know that we'll stop performing and instead we'll start leaning in. Instead, the grace of God will start to work in us. We'll stop striving. In case you're wondering, it's like, wait, is this like heresy? No. The Apostle Paul talks about how, like, we should, um, uh, talks about the works of the flesh and how all these things are going in with us. And instead of telling us, hey, guys, don't do the works of the flesh, he says, here's what you should do. This is in Galatians. He said, keep in step with the Spirit, and you will not give in to those desires. So don't focus on the desires. That's wrongheaded. Instead, focus on the Spirit, and it will guide you to the things that he wants you to do. And again, these are like little simple things. So really practically, and just really, really practically, it's like every day, get up and say, Holy Spirit, would you guide me? Help me see what you're doing today. Help me hear what you want me to say. When you read your Bible, when you pick up your Bible and you want to read your devotions for the day, God, would you just help me to understand what's on the page and how it applies to my life today? I guarantee that if you do that on a consistent basis, things will start to come. You will have like matrix things just popping off the page at you. Like if, if you'll just yield to God, you will start going, I, I've read this story a thousand times. I've never seen that before. That's because you were doing it on your own, right? All right, I'm, I'm about to be done. Here's what I want to do. Rob, go ahead and come on up. We're just going to play for a second. Now, if I was a good Pentecostal, like I grew up with, right now, we would have a giant altar call, and everyone would be on their face, we, had, we would have a solemn assembly, and everyone would be repenting for a week. And if you want to do that in your home, go for it. That's awesome. I would love that. I'm going on vacation with my wife, and I'm not doing that this week. So uh, it's our 20th anniversary, and we're going to have fun, all right? So, so, so that's, not, that's not what we're doing. But if you want to do that, that would be awesome. I trust that the God of heaven will speak to your heart in the way that you need to be spoken to, if you will give him space this week to speak to you. And that you will find yourself repenting if you need to repent. And you will find yourself rejoicing if you need to rejoice. And so here, I want to give us an extra five minutes before we go for you to do any business with God that you need to do. Any business with God that you need to do. And the communion table is open. And you can come up and take communion whenever you're ready. Again, you don't deserve it. But Jesus is worthy and he's righteous. And this is a reminder of that. The price that he paid for you and you loved you. And by you, I also mean me. The point, I've got five of them pointing right back here. Four of them. However many fingers pointing this way. So I'm going to pray just real quick. I'm going to give us a little space. You come and take communion. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to end with a blessing for dads. So Holy Spirit, breathe on your people whatever it is that you want to do right now. Speak in a way only you can speak.